Hello and welcome to the Joe's Art History Podcast, a podcast which celebrates all things art historical every single day. Welcome back to another episode and it's just going to be me today, but I thought I would treat you to an in-depth look at a really incredible series of paintings by British artist William Hogarth. Now, if you've listened to the podcast before, you may remember that I've mentioned Hogarth in a previous episode, back on episode four, when I spoke to the illustrator Nyasa Hind about how Hogarth used his love of pubs within his paintings. Now, this is completely polar opposite. This is Hogarth's best known series of paintings. And the series is called Marriage a la Mode. And it's very fitting at the moment, um, particularly with the whole sort of fanfare that's in and around Bridgerton within the UK. I can only speak for the UK. I don't know if my sort of listeners further afield have also been sort of enthralled with the Bridgerton bug. But essentially, the series of paintings is all about the morality and or their lack of, of marrying for connections and not for love. This series is available to view at the National Gallery in London, which is of course free to enter, and was purchased for the nation in 1823. Interestingly enough, Hogarth was one of the first artists to introduce a subscription service to his art, and he was a master of engraving, and actually once he painted these, he went to Paris and turned them into a series of etchings so he could engrave them and essentially sell them to a wider audience of people. Incredibly interesting. So, if you're a fan of Bridgerton or just any sort of obsession that you have, the sort of noble societies and sort of the goings on of marrying into wealth, then I really do think this series of paintings is for you. Just sit back and relax as I talk to you about William Hogarth's incredible series of paintings, Marriage a la Mode. So I'm going to start today's podcast a little bit differently. And I'm going to start with a quote from the former director of the National Gallery of London, Neil McGregor. For centuries, the English have been fascinated by the criminal and sexual exploits of a playboy aristocracy, by the money-grubbing, social ambitious, selfish and leechery of untrustworthy lawyers and dishonest doctors, by gambling, child prostitution, venereal disease and ever more terrifying manifestations, and again and again by the squandered greed of the great. It is this image of privileged classes that the English-speaking world has long loved to hate. It is the stuff of the most popular sermons of the 17th and 18th centuries, of the satire of the Swift and the novels of Dickens. And it is the subject of one of the supreme achievements of British painting, William Hogarth's six-part series, Marriage a la Mode. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't help but find myself agree with McGregor's statement. We, as a society, are obsessed with the aristocracy, and it's something that we love to hate. And this isn't even just in Hogarth's time. If, you know, if I bring it a little sort of closer to home and, and more up to date, when I think of the absolute media circus that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle or Prince William and Kate Middleton have around them, it's a really interesting dynamic that the aristocracy and the public have always held between each other and there seems to be this fascination in particularly about squalid greed of 
the Great, as McGregor says, and I find this really, really interesting. And I really actually believe this is why something so, so recent as Bridgerton on Netflix, which is this series set in Georgian Britain, and it kind of follows the sort of trials and tribulations of a season of matchmaking amongst young, wealthy aristocracy. And it's a really, really interesting series because it kind of encapsulates everything really that Hogarth is trying to put forward in this set of paintings. And I just felt it was very on point and I just had to talk about these paintings because they really are a depiction of the moral dilemmas of marrying for love or marrying for connection, which is a real cornerstone theme of the Netflix series Bridgerton. However, we're not here to talk about that today. We're here to talk about Hogarth's six-part series, Marriage a la Mode. Now, for those eagle-eyed listeners amongst you, you might remember that I've already spoken about Hogarth once before on the podcast with the wonderful illustrator Nyasa Hind. And for those of you that haven't heard, it's episode four and Nyasa and I discuss Hogarth's love and use of the dog breed pugs within his paintings. And it's a really interesting episode, so if you haven't listened to that, I would highly recommend that once you finish this one, definitely go back and check it out. You will not be sorry. Now, Hogarth is a really interesting artist within British art history, within the history of art in general, really, and British history in itself. He was really the first artist that really sort of championed the idea of art for all, and he, he did that through magazine subscriptions, so people could come and subscribe to his magazine and he would illustrate these plates and series of things and not just about everyday life. His work was full of satire, but not just satire aimed at the wealthy. Satire also aimed at the everyday commonplace man, woman, child. This was a really difficult time in Britain, but also a very interesting one. It was kind of building momentum off the back of revolution and the aristocracy had kind of started to fall out of favour and lose power with the Industrial Revolution. There was a widening of middle classes. There were these merchants that were coming in, making their fortune, and suddenly had money to spend. And it was really the first time within British history that art became a commodity and something of commercial interest, not just for the aristocracy and, of course, the church, who were the two very key and really only patrons before this point, the Industrial Revolution really sort of widened the the art market and kind of created a need and a want for collecting art and things to fill your home with. It's a really, really interesting time. But I think it's important that I sort of give you a little brief explanation of who Hogarth was as an artist before we sort of dive into this really, really interesting series and this series of six paintings. So what's really important to know about Hogarth is he was not destined for fame and fortune. He was born in London in 1697 and was the son of a teacher. But when his father's dreams of opening a Latin-speaking coffee shop in the centre of London didn't go to plan, his father landed himself in debtor's prison, which of course brought shame onto the Hogarth family. So Hogarth himself had no prospects, so he knew he had to take up a job. So Hogarth took up an apprenticeship as a silver engraver. And after a few short years after showing promise, he then upgraded to copper print plating. And then after six years, branched out on his own to open his own engraving studio. And this is at a time when the industry was really sort of booming and he would illustrate things like books, trading cards, and on the occasion, satires, which were very, very popular within 
Hogarth's lifetime. And although he seemed to be doing well from the outside, for Hogarth it really wasn't enough and he really wanted to be taken seriously as an artist and enrolled in the James Thornhill Academy in Covent Garden. And James Thornhill recognised Hogarth's potential straight away and he quickly became one of his favourite students. And of course, in true English style, how did he thank Thornhill? He eloped with his daughter, which was incredibly scandalous at the time. However, that's not very important right now. Now, the 1730s was really a turning point in Hogarth's career as he managed to marry his two loves of painting and engraving and he embarked upon a very ambitious series of paintings which he would then copy and sell as engravings. And it was through him selling to this eager audience that it really sort of gave birth to not only Hogarth's career but also really one of the first times a self-sufficient artist within British art history. And Hogarth depicted everything from harlots to revolutions to the couple that I'm just about to talk about in Marriage a la Mode and his scenes didn't only just entertain, they were full of wit and really important symbolism which today we need explanation but was very much common knowledge and recognised when Hogarth was creating these works. So with all this in mind let's have a look at painting one of Marriage a la Mode. So let me set the scene for you before I discuss what painting one actually looks like. So the entire series, these six paintings which I've mentioned, tell the story of an aristocratic family named very witty the Squanderfields and it suggests that this family have squandered their aristocratic fortune or they're seeking ways to redeem this and in order for Lord Squanderfield to regain some of his fortune his son has to marry the daughter of a wealthy merchant so he can maintain his estate and his possessions and this was very commonplace at the time that Hogarth painted this series of paintings which was painted between 1743 and 1745. So the opening scene, so painting one within the series, takes place in this very grand bedroom surrounded by these incredibly intricate portraits and very ornate decorations but what the focal point really for this painting is and what your eye is drawn to initially is two gentlemen sitting around a table and one of them is reading a piece of parchment which states marriage settlement and in between the two men that are sitting at the opposite ends of the table to each other is someone who appears to be a lawyer. Now to the side of the painting is the young betrothed couple and not the picture of happiness, unfortunately. They could not be less interested in each other if you tried. The gentleman has turned his back completely on his soon-to-be wife and is actually admiring himself. He's in the mirror. He is extravagantly dressed in this incredible blue coat and if you look closely, he's holding a little snuff box in his hand and on his neck there is a very prominent black spot and this black spot is a continuous theme throughout this series but I will tell you a little bit later on what that means. Now if we look at the bride-to-be, alas not blushing but she looks completely devastated and in her hands she holds a handkerchief which has her wedding band 
in the centre of it and seems to be almost sort of playing with it and looking completely devastated that this is about to happen. And there's a gentleman beside her who is a very key character also in the series and he's called Silvertongue. And I'll introduce you to him a little bit later on, but essentially he is the madame's love interest later on in the series. It's very, very interesting sort of what happens between Silvertongue and the mistress, who will eventually be the countess and essentially what the young couple symbolise just purely within their looks and how devastated the, br the bride-to-be is and how uninterested the groom-to-be is, is that these two are marrying for connection, not for love. And there's a real sort of moral dilemma within this contract essentially, which is what you see the two gentlemen on the table to the right-hand side of the couple dealing with, which is of course the fathers of the couple-to-be. Now, the bride's father is a gentleman that sits in red and he's sort of diligently checking the marriage contract. But across the table from him is the, the Earl of Squanderfield and he is the sort of living embodiment of aristocracy. Very sort of eloquently dressed and he is holding a parchment paper which is sort of a managed to sort of cascade open onto the floor which points to a family tree. The merchant is looking over at Lord Squanderfield and he, he's sitting in a very sort of decadent chair and is very sort of ornately dressed, very beautifully dressed in rich, bold colours. He's holding his right hand over his heart and showing his sort of signet ring. So it's showing you first and foremost that he is the person of landed gentry and of a great family connection. This is further emphasised within the painting because on his left hand side, the Lord Squanderfield is holding a parchment paper which is kind of cascaded down onto the floor of the room which they're in. And he's pointing to a family tree and he's pointing with his left hand and showing his family is of lineage. There is aristocracy blood which runs through their veins. This then completely makes sense when you look at what is in front of the Lord on the table, which is a huge pile of money, which is of course, is his daughter's wedding diary. And between the two gentlemen stands a lawyer who seems to be sort of negotiating the contract between the two of them. There's also sort of scrambled up bits of paper that lie at the feet of the merchant. And you can see that the Earl needs this money essentially because if you look behind the Earl, there is an architect. And if you look out of the window of the scene, you can see this incredibly ornate house, which is in the process of being built and nearing completion. And there's sort of cross sources that I found where some say that this is the marital home of the soon-to-be couple, or it's actually the another home for Lord Squanderfield. Anyway, I seem I would like to think it's it's the marital home of the soon-to-be couple. But essentially what this scene is signifying is that there's an agreement going on and that the couple in fact are marrying for connection rather than love. And this is a huge moral dilemma and it was something that was really commonplace at the time and in some cultures it still is today. So it's a contract and agreement between two different people. So Lord Squanderfield of course has whittled away his entire fortune and through marrying the merchant's daughter the merchant will pay for Squanderfield to continue his lifestyle and the merchant's daughter will in fact inherit a title which 
mutually beneficial to both fathers. However, when you think back to how I described the couple who look completely uninterested and one of them completely heartbroken and miserable, it completely symbolises the idea and shows marrying for money, not love, can never lead to good things. And it's kind of an omen for what's to come within the rest of the series. A really interesting point is the artworks that are on the wall in this room. Directly above the bride is a portrait of Medusa and it's just her head and the Medusa is screaming. So historians like to think that this painting symbolises what the soon-to-be bride is sort of feeling on the inside, but she's it's completely out of her control because, of course, at this time, women were the property of men. And what's really interesting, if you look to the bottom left-hand corner, there are two dogs in the painting. And this is really, really interesting because this is a very common signifier which would make sense to people um, that were looking at it in Hogarth's time. However, for, for us, you probably would miss it if, if it wasn't pointed out to you. I know I certainly missed it until I read about it. And that is a pair of dogs which sit together and they're actually married, if you will, because they're both coupled together by what is known as a coupling collar. So it's a collar that connects to another collar and it's it appears to be some sort of iron material which kind of further symbolises that this is a binding contract that these two are about to enter into and it's completely out of their control sadly they are both victims in their father's game. So with this in mind let's move on to painting two. So I, I forgot to mention that each painting in the series has a name so the first painting is called the marriage settlement which kind of instantly sets the scene of what's going on. In painting two however this is called tete a tete and it appears to be that several months of marriage has now passed and the couple are sitting in a room in their marital home. And the phrase tete-a-tete -tete implies it's a private conversation with no third party present. But we are kind of the third party, really the viewer is kind of looking in onto the scene. And what it shows is the young couple together and they're sitting in this incredibly intricate drawing room and it's filled with these amazing little details which at the time when this when this series of paintings was completed and indeed when it was then turned into a series of etchings and then sold to the wider public there's so much details and sort of hints and symbols within this work that people in the 1740s when this was released would completely understand and it really helps tell the, the story within the piece and it's really really complicated and very intricate and far more than what meets the eye and a really great example of why you really should give things a second chance or just look at things a little bit longer and everything within this painting and across the whole six in the series every object has a meaning and tells you more behind the story. So what we see is the young married couple in this incredibly beautiful, intricate drawing room and a few months of marriage seems to have passed but all does not appear well between the couple. The sort of focal point is the young couple sitting around this small coffee table and the Viscount uh, appears completely exhausted and completely washed out and he's sort of slumped back in his chair very much defeated and it's very very obvious that he's just sort of strolled in from the night before of a, of a night of gambling and drinking and women and being unfaithful to his wife and the first sign of that is there's a small puzzle that sort of sniffs around the Viscount's coat and he sort of locates a muslin cap 
of another woman um, that he's sort of very much stuffed in his pocket. And on the floor at his feet, he has sort of discarded his sword, which is still in its holder. And there's also another sort of trinket of another woman um, wrapped around the sword of the the Viscount, which was actually a very sort of French thing to do. Your your lover would give you a token which you would wrap it around your sword. And this was actually, this implies that the Viscount has travelled as well. This is something that he perhaps has picked up in France. And again, very, very washed out, hands in his pockets, looks completely defeated. I mean, we've all been there. And again, the black spot is very, very evident on his neck. But I'll tell you more about that in the next painting in the series. But the wife herself, she's not completely innocent in this. She is on the opposite side of the table and she's very sort of smugly looking at her husband and sort of stretching herself out as if she too has enjoyed a very long night but has also been kept in very good company. The scene behind her is complete chaos. There is cards on the floor, There's chairs have been turned over, there's violin cases discarded on the floor. Which may all seem like she's she herself has had, uh, you know, perhaps a raucous party while her husband has been out gallivanting. But there's something very smug in her look that suggests to people that she herself has got a secret to keep. And the way that she has sort of lurched herself forward in this time would is very much associated with um, a female being pregnant. So this is the first sort of indication that she is with child. But it's not exactly sure if it's her husbands or not because you have to remember silver tongue from the, the first painting in the series and in the background there's a sort of implication of sort of morality and a very sort of underlying sexual nature within the scene so we can see this on the wall um, in the room behind which is this incredible dining room drawing room and there's a particular painting so there's three paintings of saints and beside that there is this landscape painting but it's covered with a green curtain and all you see is a naked foot and this implies that that the painting itself is very indecent that it has to be covered over but it's also a signal that the couple themselves have performed sort of immoral acts as well as sort of the chaos of, and the mess of the scene and indeed of sort of the main protagonists themselves you have this incredible mantelpiece, which is also supposed to be a signal that um, Hogarth is making fun of the fact that despite the fact that this couple has so much money, you cannot buy taste. And this is emphasised by these incredible ornate and detailed fireplace, but they have all these really rather tacky knickknacks and ceramic objects on the mantelpiece and you really cannot get any more on there if you tried. And in the centre of it all, there's this classical bust, but the nose has been broken and then very sort of shoddily repaired. And that's also uh, a reference or a symbol of a third person within the marriage. So again, another symbol that the couple are unfaithful to each other. And behind that, you have this incredible painting of a cherub playing the bagpipe. And Hogarth has made it very, very clear that the cherub is playing a song called Oh Happy Gloves. And you can see this on the musical sheets, the, mu the musical paper which the cherub is playing. And this is a song all about love that once was, happy days have passed and um, love has been very much forgotten. And again, it sort of plays to the theme of the series of the dangers of marrying for advantage rather than love. And this is sort of, again, this sort of whole idea of tackiness and infidelity and essentially just that these they're bad people 
again, not only through their actions, but it kind of seeps into everything that they do, including their taste and their furnishings, as well as sort of the knickknacks and sort of tacky ornaments that take over the entirety of the mantelpiece. There's also this incredible clock, which is next to the couple. And it's very, very grotesque, if I say so myself. There's, you know, the, the clock face is very much off-centre. The face of the clock itself is set within this incredible foliage and within the foliage though there's fish and there's cats and there's a Buddha and out of the Buddha's belly there is um, two candlesticks. It's as terrible as it sounds but uh, the final detail to note is within this scene to the far left hand side is an accountant who has turned his back on the couple and he's sort of thrown his hands up to the heavens to say I can't get this couple to take their finances seriously and he's seen with a ledger under his arms and essentially receipts for perhaps gambling debts, bills, projects. The couple are in absolutely no fit state to listen to their accountant or to, to do anything really at this moment in time. It's kind of like the accountant himself has turned his back and has just said, this is beyond, they're beyond my help. I can't do anything and they don't take me seriously. And on the sort of spike that the accountant is holding is one receipt and that is where Hogarth has dated the painting. So Again, and at the feet of the accountant, there's also two violin cases, which one is lying open and sort of the bottom of the violin is exposed. And this actually symbolises infidelity and that something of a sexual nature has taken place. It's so incredibly detailed for a painting. And this is actually probably the best known in the series by Hogarth. And I would really, really encourage you to go and have a look at the painting itself and you can pick out all these details. It's really, really incredible. So moving on to scene three, which is completely different again and really takes out of the, the marital home and it very much centres around the Viscount himself. So painting three in the series is called The Inspection and here it depicts the Viscount visiting a doctor's office, but not one that you and I would perhaps be familiar with. It's dark, it's grimy, and it's completely full to the brim with these weird and wonderful objects and artefacts. There's narwhal horns, there's printing presses, there's anatomical figures, there's jars that are labelled with remedies, there's paintings. It's a very, very strange place for someone as elaborately dressed as the Viscount Squanderfield to be essentially uh, frequenting, never mind feeling and looking extremely comfortable as he is in this painting. And what you see is this group of characters, of course the Viscount himself is elaborately dressed, showcasing his love of squandering away his wife's fortune. And to the left-hand side of the painting, you see the doctor who is rubbing his glasses in a very, um, with a very dirty looking tissue, which kind of makes me genuinely fear what the inspection is going to be. But there's also, next to him, there's a skull on the table, which is, this is a symbol of death and reminding people of their morality and that death will, will come to everybody. But in this scene, no one really seems to be bothered by this. And the doctor himself has this very sort of grimacing face and he just looks like someone who isn't to be trusted. Now, as I've said before, the Viscount, he's sitting down in a chair, he's elaborately dressed and he's looking way more comfortable than someone that has put himself in this situation is. And he's sort of gesturing towards the doctor and he's holding this tiny little box of pills. And 
If you remember throughout the whole series, I've always pointed to the Viscount's black spot, which is on his neck. Now, this is a signal that he is, in fact, infected with syphilis. And this is a very, very common disease, sexually transmitted disease. So it shows that he is a person of low morals and that he's been frequenting with prostitutes. And the pills are essentially, he's sort of gesturing to the doctor that the pills aren't working. And sort of in between his legs, he has another pill box, which is kind of Hogarth signifying that the root of the problem, of course, has been through sex. And beside the Viscount to his, to the sort of the, the right of the painting, is this very sickly looking I would say young women, but essentially I, I look at her as a child. She looks very young, perhaps 13, 14 years old. And she herself is very, very ill. She's very pale and she's sort of dabbing her mouth. And she too is holding a pill box identical to the Viscount, which, which sort of suggests that the Viscount is the person that has infected this poor child. Now, beside the Viscount, in between the doctor and this sort of very sickly looking creature, this young child, is this very powerhouse woman. And this is believed to be the, the young girl's mother, who too also has black spots across her face, which would suggest that she is not only infected, but she herself is a prostitute. And you can see from the collars, of, of cuffs rather, of the two women, so the, so the mother and the young girl, their clothes are very identical in how they're composed with these very sort of big rough sleeves, which is Hogarth showing the viewer that this that these two are related. This is the mother and her daughter. And the daughter herself, she's wearing these clothes that are far too big for her, which again suggests that she has borrowed her mother's clothes and her mother has introduced her to prostitution, which is was not an uncommon thing at the time. Now, a saying here which kind of links the two again, the age-old saying, like mother, like daughter, but also with the fact that this is all about the Viscount being treated for syphilis. There was a, a saying, you know, in the 1700s, two minutes with Venus, two years with Mercury. And essentially, when you contracted syphilis, so the whole idea is, you know, two minutes with a prostitute, two years taking Mercury. So they used to ingest Mercury as a way of treating syphilis which of course did more damage than good but at the time that was considered sort of groundbreaking medicine so again it's just really sort of a Hogarth once again really trying to sort of take away any sort of sympathy that you may hold for this Viscount and his actions again pointing to lack of morality lack of love and real selfishness really and a reminder to people that this is what happens when you are not a good person. But scene four of the series is, again, an interesting contrast to the inspection. And the fourth painting in the series of six is called The Toilet. And it shows the Viscount as, we're not too sure if this is at the same time or a little bit further on, but it's kind of like, meanwhile, in the land of his wife. She herself is not morally upstanding, much like her husband. So as I've mentioned, painting four in the series of six is called La Toilette. Instantly, you're greeted with this incredibly decorative interior scene. And there's something straight away that draws your eye. There's this beautiful big bed and on top is a crown. So this indicates that the Earl has now 
passed away, so her husband's father has now passed away. He is now the Earl of Squanderfield and that she is now the Countess. Here in this scene, you see the Countess entertaining in her bedroom. Now, this might seem like a very strange thing, but this was actually a very common thing to happen during the time. It was the done thing to entertain for ladies of the house to entertain from their bedroom. And what you see is she's finished getting ready and you can see that she sort of sits in this beautifully elegant yellow gown and she has a hairdresser standing behind her. And what's really, really interesting is that he is, he's actually using curling iron and he's using a, a blank bit of paper to sort of take the heat out of the iron, the curling irons before he puts them away. And she sort of sits very relaxed back in a chair and there's an indication that time has moved on and that she has in fact had a child. And you can see this from a teething coral that hangs from the chair, but there's no sign of the child. This also indicates that she's a poor mother really because the room is filled with people and decadence and the child is nowhere to be seen. So in this room you can see um, a group of different figures and they're being entertained by, on the left hand side they have an opera singer and his flautist entertaining the group and then you have this array of characters, there's this one gentleman who still has curlers in his hair but this very beautifully delicate captain's coat and he's sort of sipping on what looks to be a cup of hot chocolate and there's another woman in this beautiful white dress who is being handed a cup of hot chocolate by a servant and chocolate at this time was was the thing to drink in the morning and it was it was the height of luxury and it would, had just been brought over from the americas and again there's indications that all is not sort of morally well with this group of people that the, the countess is associating herself with there is also their signs of disease and syphilis some have the black spots some appear to be you know to be so overindulged that they're sort of sleeping in the corner and yet the Duchess is so uninterested with everyone because of course who is in the room talking to her is her lover Silvertongue and he's very much now part of the furniture if you will. He's got his feet up on the sofa, he's looking very relaxed and he's pointing to a depiction of a ball behind him and in his hands he's holding an invitation to this masquerade ball that he's that he's showing her and on the floor before them is actually a, a servant, a young Indian boy who's looking through and sorting out items that the, that the Countess Squander has acquired at auction and you can see that because there's a, an auction catalogue and all the items still have their lot numbers on them. But what's really important is that silver tongue here is, a, is the only thing that the Countess is interested in. And so much so that this is her bedchamber. And when you look at the paintings on the wall, she's even commissioned a painting of silver tongue that essentially is the first thing she sees when she wakes up in the morning. So again, very different to the inspection. So what her husband is, is going through, but... Nonetheless, she is not an innocent party within this and the masquerade really sets the scene for what is about to happen between canvases five and six. So painting five is really the beginning of the end for this really tragic couple in Hogarth's series of paintings, Marriage a la Mode, and this one is called The Banyu and 
The Banyu essentially was a place in London. So in 18th century London, these Turkish bathhouses began to pop up all over the city. And it was a place you could go and socialise with your friends, not only for uh, baths, but they normally had coffee houses attached to them. So you could go to these places and socialise. And there was also rooms to rent above these coffee houses. So of course... Again, a social environment, but also it led itself to various sort of debauchery and various sort of seedy goings on. And essentially, this is where scene five takes place. It's in one of these rooms above one of these Turkish bathhouses and it's at night time. And the scene has really rather beautifully lit by just the suggestion of the fireplace, which is not even in view. And what you see is the Countess who is in the centre of the painting and she's on her her knees begging her husband. And what's happened is her husband has come crashing into the room and discovered herself and Silvertongue, very much caught in the act. And what's happened is he's challenged Silvertongue to a duel and unfortunately the Earl himself has been has been drinking and Silvertongue has fatally wounded the Earl. And you can see Silvertongue, just a suggestion of him as he sort of leaps out of the window in his night garments. And that's just to the back of the painting on the left hand side. And the Earl, as he collapses to the floor in his last dying breaths, his wife, the Countess, has dropped to her knees and is begging him for forgiveness. And she has these glistening tears that are really beautifully and masterfully caught in the sort of flicker of the firelight. And the scene is, is so heartbreakingly sad, but there's almost a suggestion of, well, if you play with fire, you're going to get burnt here. And there's a there's very much suggestions that Countess has, of course, been unfaithful. There's the, the unmade bed, the clothing of both Silvertongue and herself have been thrown on the ground. And you can see that she they've actually gone to the masquerade ball, which has been suggested in painting four. As you can see that their costumes and their masks have been discarded on the ground, along with a whole series of other items, such as her whalebone corset, her what looks to be hooped skirt, and also a pill box. At the Countess's feet, there is the blood-stained sword of Silvertongue who is now escaping the room who Hogarth has depicted of course in her night garments and she's in this very virginal white and she's very much sort of proclaiming perhaps not her innocence but her her desire for forgiveness and in the background of the scene there has there's other gentlemen that have now sort of burst into the room after all you know hearing some noises or the ruckus and really this is an ultimate piece and there really is only one thing that can happen here now and which moves us really sadly onto painting number six, so the final one in the series, which is called The Lady's Death. To set the scene, it's in this very humble apartment, so she's no longer in this huge, big, grand rooms with vast amounts of wealth. It's very evident that her late husband has squandered away her father's wealth and you see the Countess sitting in this chair and at her feet is a newspaper which depicts an image of the gallows and on the paper it says the dying words of Silvertongue. So you can see that her lover has been tried and killed for the death of her husband, the Earl. Beside the paper is a small vial and when you look back up at the Countess, 
she herself has ingested what was in this vial, which is obviously poison, and this is now her last dying breath. It's incredibly emotional because for the first time you see her young daughter who is being held to her mother's face to kiss her goodbye by this nurse or nanny who is completely devastated by the Countess's death and the young girl is very much grabbing her mother's face and pleading with her and it's, it's so, so heartbreaking. The child itself is has the black spot on her face so she too has been infected with syphilis which she's of course um, caught from her mother and father and there's also a suggestion that she's a very sickly child there, there appears to be some form of calipers on the ankle of this poor child who essentially is the victim of her mother and father's immoral dealings and again this is kind of Hogarth hitting home that your actions have a wider effect not only on you but everyone that you know and as well as the the child and the nanny saying their final goodbyes to the Countess, her father, who we know as he is wearing the same coat that he was in the first painting, is removing her wedding ring within her last dying breaths. And he too looks like a bit of a broken man, so they really have absolutely nothing left. And this is also emphasised by the right-hand side of the painting that shows a very simple dinner set up on a table and this starving dog which has clambered onto the table to sort of steal food who is bone thin and there's these two gentlemen that seem to be debating what's going on in the corner as well who don't really have any empathy for the situation and in the background there's an open window which looks on to London and it's briefly mentioned that you know there's two men that are debating in the back corner of the room and it's believed actually that one of these figures is actually a doctor that has been called and that there's he's arrived on the scene and said there's nothing he can do and essentially he's just sort of standing back and you know watching watching the scene unfold now this is so heartbreaking and there really isn't very much more to say on scene 6 but really it's the final way that Hogarth is hitting home that when you marry for connections and nothing else no good can come of it for anybody and it's such a sad way to end the series but it's something that really really sticks with you and I remember when I first saw this series at the National Gallery in London where you can see these six series of paintings together it's really impactful and it's one of the most although not the largest paintings by any means necessary in the National Gallery they're definitely one of the most important series of paintings that they have and they really do pack a punch when you go and see them so I would thoroughly encourage you if you go to London or you find yourself in London in the near future do go to the National Gallery it's free to enter and these six paintings are continuously on display. Now as I said this series of paintings was turned into etchings which Hogarth sold and interestingly enough the etchings really do pick out far more detail than what the paintings allow and even in the reproductions that I've been looking at within books and on the internet there it's really really difficult to pick out all the details again I think he perhaps maybe used um, resin in his paint which was very common in you know 18th century London when you painted there was always resin in it but resin of course when it hits direct sunlight it darkens over time which is perhaps this is just my my theory, which is perhaps why it's, you know, the details are particularly in the background of things are very, very dark and hard to make out, particularly in scenes like number three and number five as well. 
Now, the series of etchings was incredibly popular, but the original paintings, which we've been talking about, they didn't actually sell for very much money when Hogarth had finished the series in sort of, you know, the 1750s and wanted to sell them. And essentially, they were sold for about £120 and were passed about and then sold at auction and then were acquired for the nation in 1823 and have been on display in the National Gallery since they were acquired. And there you have it, the end of another episode of the Joe's Art History Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed my in-depth look at William Hogarth's series of paintings, Marriage a la Mode. And like I said, these are available to view in the National Gallery in London, but there is also a wealth of material available online as well. And I'll leave a link to some of the resources that I used for this series, incredible videos as well, in the show notes below. As also part of my research, I, I actually bought and read the catalogue for the series of paintings that was published by the National Gallery and it's by Judy Egerton and I'll leave a link to how you can buy that catalogue if you want. It's a very small one, it's only about 50 pages but it is jam-packed full of information and detail and essentially if I had gone into any more detail this podcast could have been about two and a half hours long so I really just sort of whistle-stop tour of these incredible series of paintings but I highly encourage that you go and check them out. As always, if you would like to get in touch and talk about anything that you heard in today's podcast, then you can email me, joesarthistory at gmail.com, or you can contact me via Instagram, which is at joesarthistory. Links to both of those things are in the show notes below. As always, it would be great to get more people listening to the podcast and spreading my message of art for all. So while you are listening, if you think you know anybody that would be interested in hearing this podcast, please do feel free to pass it on to them. It also really helps if you can leave a review and like, rate and subscribe, which also helps other people find the podcast as well. And it just really means a lot. I've had some really lovely reviews in the past few weeks, so I'm really, I really appreciate anybody that's taken the time to do that. Thank you so, so much. That's all from me this week. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to welcoming you next time on the Joe's Art History Podcast. Until then, keep learning and remember. Art is for all. Bye.